0: Hello Bulls fans and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ, a Chicago Bulls podcast on the Blue Wire Sports Podcast Network. Thank you for joining me again this week, episode two for the week. Hope you're all enjoying yourselves and taking care of yourselves. Watching NBA playoffs, enjoying all the basketball that's happening that doesn't contain our Chicago Bulls, but that doesn't mean we can't have a podcast. I'm back again this week because I want to do part two of the what-if scenarios that I started on Monday. If you haven't listened to that, I suggest you listen to that before this episode. So go back Hit pause on this one and listen to that episode where I went through some what-if scenarios that some of the listeners had sent through. And essentially, what I'm doing is I'm just changing the variables. If one little slight change happened, what what does that mean for the Chicago Bulls and the franchise? So I touched on a few going back from the phantom call that that Hugh Holland's made on Scottie Pippen in the 1994 playoffs. From you know what what does a rebuild in the early 2000s look like if some things? just changed slightly. So example, what happens if the Bulls had landed Tracy McGrady? What happens if the Bulls never traded Elton Brand? And I finished up on Derek Rose and you know, what if he just stayed healthy? So that's where we left it off. So may as well continue on from part one now. So if you haven't listened to it, go and do it. But let's continue on with part two today. And I've got a lot to actually get through. So I probably have to go a little bit quicker than I did on part one. So Let's zip through these uh, these ones as, as as fast as we can. I still want to get into some detail with them. But this next one, continuing on from a similar time period. So we're going back to about 2014 here. This question comes in from Keith Bogans' Burner account, <laughs> as well as Spet. They're both from Twitter. So uh, thanks for this question. They ask, what if the Bulls had signed Mallow So this move or, or non-move, if you want to call it that, that really changed the Bulls in, in a lot of ways. So sometimes... I, I say this often, but sometimes it's the move you don't make, which are often your best. And given how McMallow's career played out after signing with the Knicks in 2014, it could have gone really bad for the Bulls, given how quickly Derek Rose and Keem, Noah fell off. So if you added, you know, Carmelo Anthony to the mix, it, it could have looked quite ugly thereafter. But I mean, signing Mallow was really only a possibility for the Bulls in 2014 if they were serious about offering a max deal. And that was never really in play, as they only had around 17 or 18 million dollars in cap space from memory. So to get toward a max contract, the Bulls really needed to clear a lot of space, which would have included trading guys like Taj Gibson into other teams' cap space. Now, given Taj Gibson was part of the recruiting pitch to Mallow, he was part of the team that tried recruiting Mallow to Chicago in 2004 14. The Bulls weren't ever going to get Mallow because they never were going to trade Gibson because they valued him so highly. So Mallow was never really a possibility. But I mean, let's assume that was the case and and the Bulls were able to convince Mallow that he was was, uh, smart to walk away from a five-year $120 million offer that he eventually received from the Knicks and instead take a four-year deal at say $18 million or even a two-year deal and maybe re-up later on. So maybe let's just assume that Mallow was cool with that I still probably think it's a train wreck to be honest with you. Like I said, Mallow's career post two thousand and fourteen didn't necessarily grow go that great for him and for the Bulls as well. It it didn't I mean we had one good season thereafter where the Bulls with Tibbs in his final year, they won fifty games, went to the playoffs, played played the Cavs in the second round, and if things went their way, maybe you could have advanced to to the Eastern Conference Finals, maybe even the finals, but obviously that didn't happen. But I think a lot of the reason as to why that did happen was Jimmy Butler emerging out of nowhere. He became an all-star that in that 2015 NBA season. So, you have to question if that happens if you bring in Carmelo because you're adding Carmelo into the mix with Derrick Rose and they're two two high usage guys. I, I I don't think that means Jimmy Butler never becomes a good player or the player a a a all-star caliber player. But I don't know if he becomes the current player that we're looking at today or at least not right in that season because. If you add Mallow with Rose, they're, they're two high usage dominant ball users on the perimeter. I don't think Jimmy Butler gets the same exposure as he does playing next to Rose and Mallow in that sense. So I don't know if that season goes as smoothly as it did. I, I think Pau Gasol in a lot of ways, whilst he wasn't a great fit with Joakim Noah, I think what he did was he, he allowed the team to get more shots or redistribute the shots where it, all the all the team shots wouldn't have come on the perimeter as it would have with a team, let's say, of Derek Rose, Joe, uh, Jimmy Butler, and Carmelo Anthony. That team is taking a lot of shots from the perimeter, whereas a team with Rose, Jimmy Butler, and Powell Gasol, it's more of an even distribution. This The shot profiles of that team is coming from different locations. So I think the balance probably made a lot more sense, even though Powell wasn't the best fit himself. So I mean, the Bulls ended up signing Gasol. It wasn't the perfect fit, but I think that made a lot more sense unless Mallow was prepared to play power forward and, and take more shots inside the paint, which probably doesn't happen because Mallow never really wanted to be a power forward. And knowing Tom Thibodeau, he never really played small either. So I don't think there's a situation where he would have gone small with Mallow at power forward. So that probably never happens to that extent. So if the Bulls do sign Mallow, I think it's, I don't think they're a better team than the one that we saw with Pau Gasol. And, I don't think they end up necessarily having any chance of beating the Cavs in, in 2015. I actually think this team was uh, the, the team that the Bulls put forward in 2015 was a better team to face off against the Cavs, because like I said, I think it just would have been a problem. It would have been problematic having Mallow and Rose and Jimmy Butler sort of trying to work it out on the, peri- on the perimeter. I think it could have gotten pretty ugly at some point And I, I don't know which of those players would have had to sacrifice. I mean, Jimmy Butler definitely would have, but I mean is, is Rose taking less shots is, is Mallow taking less shots I, I don't think it's necessarily in their character to do so so I mean who knows but if you don't if you do get Mallow then you don't get Casol and you don't get Nicole Nicoleiritich so I, I think the balance of the team was better that in what they had in in two thousand and fifteen than than what the team would have been with Mallow should he have signed with the Bulls but at the end of the day not signing Mallow was a complete blessing because it saved the Bulls from years of nonsense while also allowing Butler to come through and become the star he did so we should all be thankful that Mallow chose New York to be honest with you I I definitely am Uh, I, I think it would have been a complete nightmare if we remember back to that season a lot of that season was just due to the drama with with management and Tibbs. And I think if you add a a player like Mallow into the mix, who isn't necessarily the, uh, not not to say he's a cancer or anything like that, or a locker room cancer or anything of that nature, but I don't think he's a guy that's capable of bringing a locker room together. And if anything, it's probably more likely that it would have uh, just disrupted it even more, just maybe not necessarily uh yeah you know, he would have actively tried to destroy the team but I think if if you just add guys who just wanna want their shots then it, it just makes it a little bit more difficult and I don't think the balance between he and Rose and Jimmy Butler would have worked. So I'm glad they didn't end up with Mallow. And it's a what if scenario that I'm um, I'm glad didn't play out. I'll put it that way. But the next one comes in from Jake Weeks. He asks What if LeBron never hit the game winner over Jimmy? And, uh, oh man, I'm assuming you mean the game winner in game four of the 2015 playoffs. And that's probably what you mean. So that's what I'm going to assume. And I mean, it's truly hard to know what would have happened. But if nothing else, if LeBron takes that shot in the corner of game four with the scores tied at 84 apiece, I mean, we're at least headed to overtime. We, we know that. In, in overtime, who knows what happens at that point. But the Bulls had come back from a 7-point deficit to tie it before James made that shot in the corner. So maybe they could have won in overtime. So let's run with that. Assume they get to overtime and then they win. And the Bulls are suddenly up with a 3-1 advantage against the Cavs as the series heads back to Cleveland for Game 5. I mean, that's a pretty commanding position against the LeBron team to have a 3-1 advantage. I mean... If you can take that after four games, have a 3-1 lead against LeBron and the Cavs, you're obviously doing that, and we have to remember at that point that the Bulls were without Paul Gasol, who was injured in Game 3, so he didn't reappear until Game 6, which was a do or die game for the Bulls at that point, but if you're up a 3-1 against the Cavs, you can sort of, you have some games in play, I guess, to sort of mitigate against that Gasol injury, but... I mean, in game six, as we saw, the Bulls let go of that proverbial rope, so who knows what have, what would have happened if um, they had a 3-1 advantage, but really, everything hinges on what happens in that overtime of game four should LeBron miss that shot, but if the Bulls were to pull it out and go on the road to Cleveland with a 3-1 lead, they probably still drop game five, but they still have a 3-2 advantage at that point, headed back to Chicago for game six, and... I mean, Game Six. What happened was a was a disaster. It was a blowout. The team let, like I said, they let go of the rope, and that was the end of the the end of the Tibbs era, right there. But if you go home with a three two advantage, it just changes the psychology at everything, and you have to still feel pretty confident having a game up on the Cavs coming up, coming back to the United Center, thinking you had a legitimate shot at winning the series, probably the best chance you'll ever have at finally dethroning Le- Lebron. I mean that—that's the alternative, right? So that—that that could have been in play, or, or, or I mean the other alternatives—they—they they lose in overtime. So if LeBron is good enough to hit that shot in the corner on the buzzer, basically as time is winding out, you have to assume that he's able to put forth something crazy in overtime. So I'd still probably put the odds on the Cavs beating the Bulls in overtime, but I mean. This is a Bulls podcast, so let's assume they're winning. Like I said on the previous show, if they beat the Cavs in game four, they go, they go into game five up 3-1. Let's say they lose that one. They go into game six up 3-2. If they win game six, then they go into the Eastern Conference Finals against the Atlanta Hawks, who though they were the first seed in the Eastern Conference that season, they weren't playing well at all. And I think the Bulls could have beaten that team. And I think that Bulls team the Atlanta Hawks and I think they get to the finals against the Golden State Warriors I don't think the Bulls have any chance against that Warriors team at all but I, I think they can get to the get to the finals and at that point I know management and Tibbs hated each other so maybe it's they still part ways at the end of the 2015 season but it makes it pretty damn hard to fire a coach if he can get you to the NBA finals has that really ever happened that a team fires their coach after exceeding expectations, after finally beating LeBron, you're going to fire your coach at that point. Does does that happen? I don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe things were that bad that they still happen, or that still happens. But I mean, it makes it pretty hard to imagine that it would. But if it never happens, then maybe Thibodeau doesn't get fired, and maybe Fred Hoiberg never comes into the picture. If 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 Thibodeau hangs around for one more season, then obviously Hoiberg doesn't come there in the uh, the season thereafter, and. A Bulls team that won 50 games probably doesn't fall to 42 wins and misses the playoffs. Maybe that doesn't happen. Or or, or, again, maybe it does because maybe that locked, that, that locker room was still fractured enough that it still occurs and there's still, uh, still drama with off-court drama between management and the, and the coaching staff that still forces that situation. I don't know, but. assuming the Bulls went to the final it makes it hard to fire Thibodeau at that point so you don't bring in Fred Hoiberg and if you don't bring in Fred Hoiberg things don't start to peter off from that point if you don't bring in Hoiberg you don't miss the playoffs in 2016 you don't go into the 2016 offseason Looking to uh, retool around the three alphas, you maybe you're still looking to get younger and athletic, and you actually do it. I, I don't know, but um, things change quite significantly if you don't fire Tibbs because you've made the finals. So I don't know, man. Maybe maybe it all still collapses. Maybe the things, maybe the relationships between the key people within the franchise at that point with that with that cancerous set that had to be that it needed to be blown up. But um I don't know, I I still think about that. What what if what if LeBron miss missed that shot and, and what if the Bulls pull it out in overtime? What what is it what what does that mean for this this franchise? So it's a really good one to think about. I've told myself that LeBron probably still guts it out for the Cavs in overtime, should they should he miss the shot in the corner. But maybe I just do that to protect myself from all these mental gymnastics that we have to make, because if the Bulls did win an OT and they did have that 3-1 series lead, that's a pretty damn commanding position. And and if they beat the Cavs they'd have a real chance at the finals, and that's truly could have changed everything. So, But you know what? The one, the thing that haunts me the most about that Game 4 isn't necessarily the bronze shot. It's actually what happened just before that. And, and and thankfully, I got this question in from Jared Favre, and he asks, what if the ref grants David Blatt's timeout attempt at the end of Game 4 of the 2015 second round series? And th- this one was huge. I mean, we can talk about LeBron's shot all we want, and that's just pure greatness, but this one this one changed that outcome of this game uh, completely, (laughs) completely. I mean, after a series of game-saving possessions that allowed the Bulls to catch the Cavs at the end of game four, Derek Rose basically was able to hit hit the Cavs with a layup, and and the lead that they had, it was a seven-point lead, disappeared, and the scores were tied at 84, all with 9.4 seconds remaining. And after Rose made that shot, basically David Blatt streams on the court, starts signaling for a timeout, because the, the refs knew that the Cavs didn't have a timeout, they weren't actually looking for, for the Cavs coach to make the call for a timeout. So they weren't looking at the bench. So they don't see Blatt trying to call timeout. They don't see Ty Lue trying to pull David Blatt off the court. So they, don't, they, missed, the, they missed Blatt trying to call a timeout. And in the, at that point, if they had seen it, what the call they should have made is he should have been called for a technical. And it was scores tied at 84 apiece. The Bulls go to the line to take a one-shot one shot technical where they can go up 85 84, not to mention that they get the ball back with 9.4 seconds left. Oh man, so they could have legitimately taken the lead at that point with the ball in hand. You would assume at that point that the Cavs probably foul the ball, so the Bulls probably go to the line again. And again, like I said before, this is a Bulls podcast, so I'm going to assume they go to the line, they make they go to the line to shoot two free throws, they make them both. The Bulls could have been up 87-84 at that point with the ball going back to the Cavs with the last possession of the game. Now, of course, the Cavs could probably make a three at that point if LeBron was able to make that crazy corner shot and, and J.R. Smith was cooking in that fourth quarter as well. It's-, it's definitely possible that they hit a three on the last possession, but if they do, then the, the final of that game concludes at 87-0 and then you go into overtime. And like I said before, in overtime, maybe the Bulls pull it out. So your worst case scenario at that point is the Bulls go to an overtime period, but your best case scenario is exactly what I just spoke about before, where they go into Game Five and Cleveland with a three-one advantage. So, oh, man, this one hurts more than the Lebron Lebron shot, to be honest with you, because this one, that one was was clear as day. There's nothing you can stop. You can try stopping a Lebron shot, and Jimmy Butler was all over Lebron, but that was just pure greatness. I mean. That was just an amazing shot by LeBron. There's not much more you can do in that scenario than what the Bulls tried. But in this situation with David Blatt trying to call a timeout and the refs missing that, that, that one just hurts, man. That one truly hurts. So it might be a stretch to say the refs cost the Bulls in that moment. Sure, the series is still tied two apiece, so the Bulls still theoretically had a chance at winning that series. They still had three games to do it, but against the LeBron team where you where you don't have home-court advantage and you have to win two of the next three games, it was all but over at that point, but it had the refs just made that call or just been looking at David Blatt to see that he was trying to call a technical, uh, sorry, trying to call a timeout, that would have been a technical foul. That would have been a Bulls ball. They would have gone to the free-throw line for the lead. I'm assuming they make that shot. They go up at least 85-84. They get the ball back. I mean, that that should have been a bull's win based on that one pure play that they missed on David Blatt. And I think it's realistic to think that they should have had a 3-1 advantage at that point. But yeah, like I said, (laughs) obviously it never happens. And that one sucks. So uh, thank you for sending that one in, Jared. I appreciate it going over that memory. The next one comes in from Matt Gentile. He asks, what if the Bulls never traded up for Doug McDermott? How much would it have changed the team's outlook from 2015 to the present? Now, I don't know if you guys will agree with me, and this might be a hot take, but I think this singular moment, the 2014 draft, where the Bulls traded up to select Doug McDermott, I think this was the beginning of the downfall for this Bulls organization in terms of where we are today. Now, you can probably blame the Rose injuries too, but if we're thinking about things that we could actually control or or management could actually control, obviously eliminating injuries from that, I think this move here to trade up was the one that forced everything to play out the way it did from thereafter. So it's a pretty significant moment in time in Bulls franchise history. So this transaction to the day is the one I constantly rue over and think over. That's the case because of how bad the trade was, but also for how it played its part in the the demise of the team from 2015 onwards. So we all know what happened, but as a reminder, should you have tried to erase this moment of time from your mind, the Bulls actually traded the number 16 pick at the number 19 pick in the draft, for the number 11 pick. And the players involved in that deal were Yusuf Nurkic at number 16, Gary Harris at number 19. For Doug McDermott at number 11. So that was essentially the deal. There was a little, there was a few other pieces attached to it, but that was the bulk of the deal. I'll start by saying I understand the concept of trading up from, say, pick 16 to 19 to pick 11. So trading two picks outside of the lottery to get inside the lottery, I understand the concept of doing so. So I'll put that on the table first. So that kind of makes sense. It also makes sense when you think about the Bulls' free agency plans that year. So pick 11 that makes less money than pick 16 and pick 19 combined. So the Bulls were in cap space mode at that point. They were chasing free and so they were chasing Carmelo Anthony. So having two rookies on the books would have cost more than just having the one. So it kind of made sense from a cap space, cap space point of view too. Um, but when you think about it as well, the Bulls thought that they had a championship team on their hand as well. So carrying two extra rookies... And then adding Nikola Miritich in as well, who even though was an experienced player, he too was a rookie. A team's not going to win a championship with carrying three rookies on its roster. So again, I kind of understand it, particularly when you have a coach like Tom Thibodeau, who is probably reluctant to play one rookie in his rotation, let alone three. But still, nonetheless, with that aside, what the Bulls essentially had done is they had traded two assets for one. And that one that they did end up with basically turned into nothing. So it was a complete sunk cost, which was later used as part of the Cameron Payne trade. So things got even worse with that McDermott trade. (laughs) The Bulls dealt McDermott a bad player for an even worse one in Cameron Payne, along with Taj Gibson two years later down the road. So you have to think if... If the player that they selected at number 11 wasn't Doug McDermott, but was actually a decent player, then they never make the Cameron Payne, tra- uh, Cameron Payne trade and they never tar- uh, trade Taj Gibson in that trade. Maybe they get actually something of value for Taj Gibson. But more than, more importantly than that, that, the most disappointing part of this trade beyond trading two picks for one was the fact that the players that they gave up on were actually quite capable players. So Yusuf Nurkic and Gary Harris, they've gone on to become very good two-way players in the league right now. Nurkic had a career year in Portland, averaging 15.6 points per game, 10.4 rebounds and 3.2 assists per game, as well as a steal and a block this season, whilst playing really good defense. So if you think about those numbers, if you can get those numbers out of Wendell Carter Jr., during his peak seasons, you have to be pretty happy with that. But the Bulls could have had that with Yusuf Nurkic. And then with Gary Harris, who's had a down year this season due to injury. But last season, he averaged 17.5 points per game and was shooting 39.6% from the three-point line on good volume while playing fantastic defense. So, I mean, both of those players taken at 16 and 19, assuming the Bulls kept those picks and assuming they drafted those players... They would have been really good players to have as part of your team for that season, even if Thibodeau wouldn't have played him necessarily. They're good pieces to have beyond this iteration of Bulls, and they would have been good pieces to have when you're going into that rebuilding or that retooling period. But even if they didn't necessarily want Nurkic or Gary Harris, there was players available in that draft that were completely competent as well. So obviously, we know that the Bulls took Doug McDermott at number 11, but at number 13... That's where Zach Levine was taken. Obviously, the Bulls traded for Zach Levine. They traded Jimmy Butler for Zach Levine, but you could have drafted him instead of Doug McDermott. So we know what Zach Levine's become. Dario Saric was taken at number 12. TJ Warren was taken at number 14. Rodney Hood and Clint uh, Clint Capella were taken at 23 and 27. So if you don't like Gary Harris at 9, 10, you could have had one of those guys. So there were a lot of options there for the Bulls, whether they kept their picks or made the same trade that they ended up doing. It was just that the fact that McDermott was just a bad pick, and drafting a senior, mature-age collegiate player with such poor athletic measurables always had disaster written all over it. So what missing on McDermott really did, it really limited the Bulls' asset pool. So the 19 pick, which was theirs, but the number 16 pick was the, the pick that they had acquired from the Tyrus Thomas trade from the Bobcats, so... You had traded LaMarcus Aldridge for Tyrus Thomas, who didn't work out, but you had managed to turn, tra- uh, turn Ty- Tyrus Thomas into a future first round pick, which turned into potentially Yusuf Nurkic. But unfortunately, that got turned into Ter- uh, Doug McDermott, which got turned into Cameron Payne. So it never really worked out for the Bulls at all. So uh, the remnants of that Eddie Curry trade in 2005 really got dwindled down quite pretty quickly. Well, not not necessarily quickly, but over a 10-year period, what perceived to be a great trade at the time, because it was, those assets were never really maximized and they never really became anything, which is, again, very, very disappointing. But what makes it even more disappointing is the fact that as the Bulls transitioned away from Derrick Rose and Joe Noah, having Nurkic and Harris instead of McDermott to pair with Butler and Miritich, suddenly you have a legitimate building block for the next phase of the franchise or the next phase of your retooling. So, I mean, in 2016, there's a situation where you potentially could have had Jimmy Butler at 26 years of age, Miritich, who was 24, and Nurkic and Harris, who were only 21. That's that's a young and an athletic group. <laughs> And when you consider that the Bulls had 30 plus million in free agency to spend, the Bulls had actually a chance to add to this core. Of course, we know what they did. They didn't go younger and athletic. They went after Dwayne Wade and Rajon Rondo. They paid the, uh, Dwayne Wade $23 million that season and Rondo 12 $13 million. So they obviously didn't do a smart job there. But there was a situation where the Bulls could have had a decent young core to continue building with. And... Had they used their space more effectively, and one suggestion I've always maintained is they could have kept one Moore, who only signed for $8 million in New Orleans. He was a player that made sense to keep around. But if they wanted to still go into free agency, they could have gone shopping because there was players available that season that may have been able to come to Chicago with that money. Eric Gordon signed a four-year $53 million with the Rockets. Mo Harkless signed a four year, forty million dollar with the Blazers. Seth Curry, two years, six million dollars. Wayne Allenton, two years, twelve million dollars with the Heat. Joe Harris signed a two year, two million dollar deal with the Brooklyn Nets. I mean, they're not star players, but they're players that you could have added to the core that could have reasonably contributed and become actual valued members of the team that fit a modern style of of basketball who are young and athletic, but instead they went with Rondo and Wade. So I mean that this this is frustrating. This is where things really started going downhill for the, for the Bulls. But some combination of those players that I mentioned before is feasible. I know some people will have will dispute that fact, and and they'll say that you know those players didn't want to necessarily come to Chicago. But why wouldn't they want to do that? I mean, why wouldn't they want to come to play for a big market team like the Bulls? Still own the similar type of money. Why wouldn't they want to do that in Chicago? For argument's sake, let's say the Bulls added in Eric Gordon, Mo Harkless, and Seth Curry. That actually cost the Bulls little more than what they paid for Dwayne Wade, Mo Harkless, Seth Curry, and Eric Gordon. That their contracts that they signed for in 2016 toted up to 26 and a half million dollars in 2016 just for that year, whereas the Bulls paid 23 and a half million dollars for Dwayne Wade. Maybe they would have had to pay a little bit extra to sway those guys out of the teams that they eventually ended up with, but there's still enough room to do so whilst having more left over. So we're talking about the potential of having a roster of Jimmy Butler, Nikola Mirotic, Gary Harris, Yusuf Nurkic, maybe Etuan Moore, Mo Harkless, Seth Curry, along with Taj Gibson, Robin Lopez, and Bobby Portis, even Tony Snell too. I mean, that's a pretty good young team. And then we have to remember as well that the Bulls traded Cameron Bairstow for Spencer Dinwiddie only weeks before free agency. And we know how that turned out. <laughs> so, I mean, the obvious retort to all of this, apart from the fact that some will argue that you know this entire plan is fictitious and wasn't really possible at all, and I, and I will definitely refute that. But the obvious retort is that this team doesn't win everything, and my response back to that is I, I don't care. I don't care if they would, don't win a title. It they, they would have been a fun team. It could have been a team that maxes out as a 48 or a 52-win team, which we know in the Eastern Conference is good enough to get you home court. Yeah, it doesn't win you a title, but with Jimmy Butler and that core that I mentioned before, it could have been a fun a fun team. So, uh, but obviously we didn't we didn't we didn't give it a chance. The Bulls that they 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 elected for the rebuild, and obviously they do that in, they did that in 2017. But I think in large part what happened in 2014 draft essentially led the Bulls down the path they went. So, Matt, when you asked me what this McDermott trade meant. Along with what the Bulls did in 2016 offseason with Rondo at Wade, it paid a played a significant part in the Bulls being limited in assets and heading down the path of rebuilding. So that's the situation. They 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 opted for Wade and Rondo. They gave up a season of Jimmy Butler's prime. They tried to make one uh one more play out of it. They opted for that rather than, than investing in Jimmy Butler and going for a team that potentially could have won 48, 52 wins, something in that vicinity, building a smart team around Jimmy Butler. They decided against that and ultimately that cost them and that's why we're in the rebuilding period now and maybe it all works out in the end, but there's a situation where the Bulls could have built a reasonably smart team around Jimmy Butler had they managed their assets a little bit more wisely. Obviously, we know how it all played out, but um, I would have had a lot of fun reading for a team based around Butler, Murtic, Nurkic, Nurkic and Harrison, and a host of other support pieces. I think that could have been a really good team. I think they could have been a four or five seed in the East, but uh, it's not to be, and a lot of that, I think, has to be blamed on that McDermott trade, so yeah. That's my take on that one. So I got in questions from Luke Matthew, Vincent Wong, and, and Chef Nambu, and their questions sort of basically touched on all those points that I mentioned. One of them asked about, you know, how good would have a Gary Harris, Yusuf Nurkic, and Jimmy Butler call been? Luke asked if management had stayed true to their word and got younger and athletic in 2016, what could have that looked like? And Vincent asked, if the Bulls had retooled about around Jimmy Butler with Etwan Moore and Miritich shooters and even drafted Jarrett Allen, what does that look like? And I think I touched on it there. I think it would have been a pretty damn fun period of Bulls basketball and we could have still been watching that right now. So that was only three years ago, I guess, three, four years ago when the Bulls sort of changed everything in 2016. So we could have still been watching Gary Harris, Yusuf Nurkic, Jimmy Butler and Nikola Miritich and, and whatever else was at that core right now. But instead, um, we've had to suffer through a couple of rebuilding years. But like I said, hopefully... Hopefully, there's better days ahead. But before we move on to the next question, let me tell you about this week's sponsor, which is Harry's. Blue Wire is teaming up with Harry's to make sure our listeners are shaving comfortably. Go to harrys.com forward slash blue wire to save $10 on a value trial set, which includes a five-blade razor with lubricating strip and a trimmer blade, a rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. You get all of that for just $3 shipped right to your door. Enough with the cheap razors. It's totally worth trying Harry's. Harry's has fixed shaving by combining a simple, clean design with quality and durable blades at a fair price. Harry's founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. Harry's brought a world-class blade factory in Germany that's been making quality blades for over 95 years. Join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. Claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com forward slash bluewire. All of Harry's Blaze come with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Again, make sure you go to harrys.com forward slash bluewire to redeem your razor for $3. The next question that I've got in here, or the next what if scenario I should say, comes in from Farah Santati. And he asks, what if Rondo doesn't get hurt in the Celtic series? So he's referring to the, uh, the playoffs here where Rondo injures his, uh, I think he he broke his thumb after game two. So this is such a good what if for the Bulls. And, And the reason why it is, is because it's taken on such mythical proportions. So as someone who didn't necessarily want Rondo in Chicago, I'm prepared to admit that he grew on me toward the end of that season. That's not to say that I thought he was good or that I wanted him back the following season. But after Wade went out with injury and the Bulls had to start Miritich post the Taj Gibson trade, the roster finally had some functional sense. And and what I mean by that is that one of Rondo and Wade next to Butler could have worked if you had Meretic at power forward along with another perimeter shooter and Lopez at center. But that lineup would have made more functional sense. But the Bulls didn't necessarily play that way all season. But they did ride it in into the playoffs with a lineup similar to that. Um, so you might remember that, that the Bulls at that point were a well below 500 teams. So they were 32 and 36 and they were on the brink of mix, missing the postseason, but the Bulls got better in large part because Miritic and Rondo found a connection and they were able to do that because Dwayne Wade got hurt and he missed 11 games between the 17th of March and the 6th of April. And, and what that meant was uh, Nicola Miritich has gone into the starting lineup post the Taj Gibson trade. The Bulls actually uh, were tra- trying to trade Miritic, but they decided... Or because they couldn't get anything for Mirtich, they kept him and instead of not playing him, they decided to play him. And thankfully they did because he was awesome during that period when Wade missed the, we missed those games. And he was a vital piece in the Bulls pushing towards the playoffs. In that 11-game span, he averaged 17.7 rebounds and shot 49% from the three-point line. And the Bulls were actually playing a rotation that made a lot more sense and not having Wade there enabled that, I guess. So the Bulls were able to sneak into the postseason as the 8 seed. They faced Boston the first seed, but I wouldn't say that Boston team was a normal or regular first seed. And when when Isaiah Thomas is your best player in the playoffs, or your best player on that team, and granted, he was amazing that season, but when he's your best player, you're not a typical first seed. So the Bulls had a decent chance against that Celtics team, and Robin Lopez was unstoppable. Um, the the Celtics just couldn't compete against him Because that Celtics squad was very small And Lopez was absolutely beasting them inside And Rajon Rondo himself Was absolutely awesome too in those first two games So in on, on the road in Boston Returning to Boston Rondo actually had 12 points, 8 rebounds And 6 assists in game 1 And in game 2 he was even better with 11 points 14 assists and 9 rebounds So he was damn good in those two games. He was super influential, but he didn't play another game for the rest of the playoffs because he broke his thumb. And that's why I said before his absence becomes a mythical thing or a stuff of legend because we focus so heavily on Rondo's exit in that series. And and that's fair. But what we also do is it ignores the adjustments that the Celtics made from game three onwards. And because the Bulls were crushing a small Celtics team in, inside, Brad Stevens actually conceded and decided to give the Bulls that on offense. And his basic strategy of combating Robert Lopez on offense was making him really unplayable on defense to the point where the where the Celtics went really small. So. They made a lineup change where they sent out Amir Johnson who was starting at power forward and they put in Gerald Green. They put Green at Smell forward and Jay Crowder shifted up to power forward and from there the Bulls were just unable to keep up with that Celtic squad who was just banging threes in from all over the court and the Bulls were just too big and too top heavy to sort of hang around with that Celtic squad so to me at least i still think the bulls lose that even though they got the 2-0 advantage in the series I, I think the Celtics come back i think they win four of the next five games because the bulls probably just can't compete with that speed and look i don't think they would have i don't think they would have lost in the way they did the bulls lost the next four games by a, a double digit margin or more but so maybe having Rondo sort of reduces that chance and maybe you're in that position to win maybe one or two more games, but I still think they lose. But I will concede that um the options that the Bulls had at point guard post-Rondo were pretty damn bad. I mean, you're talking about Jeremy Grant, Cameron Payne, Michael Carter-Williams, Isaiah Cannon. So obviously having Rondo there would have made a lot of difference, but I still think that the Bulls wouldn't have been able to adjust to the Celtics' smaller lineup. So uh, I'm still saying they lose. Probably not in six games, but in in seven games. And I think the Celtics sort of find a way to win it because of that adjustment was so huge in my eyes. But I know a lot of people are probably going to disagree with me on that point, but, you know, fair enough. But like I said, this this what-if's taken on mythical proportions and we'll always wonder... What could have been with that three three alphas error? And, and, you know, who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they do advance to the second round, at least, if Rondo had stayed healthy. But moving on to the next what-if scenario. So this one comes in from Sir Brian G2. He asks, if the Bulls didn't trade Jimmy, who do you think they could have feasibly added to the 2017-18 roster to build around him? Or did the Wade and Rondo signings sink any chance of that happening? So, assuming the Bulls didn't rebuild and they kept Butler, but they still decided to part ways with Rondo and Wade. So, the situation here, I I still think it would have been pretty dire. And and the fact of that matter is that the Bulls cap position was really hampered because of that buyout that they agreed to Dwayne Wade. So... So, if you let me, let me do some, um, some back of the envelope calculations here and let's do some cap positioning. So, the Bulls had basically, in my scenario here, where you sub out Dwayne Wade, you have him as, at the current buyout that he agreed to, which is around $16 million. You had Rondo's partial guarantee of $3 million. You had Miritich's cap hold in place. You had Butler, Lopez, Payne, Valentine, Grant, Portis, Felicia. You had all those guaranteed contracts in place against the cap position of, or the salary cap. At 99 million that only leaves you with about 24 million dollars in space to do something with in 2017 for agency but that's without considering cap holds for minimum roster charges that's without considering the cap hold for the, the uh the draft pick in 2017 so that that 24 million dollar number probably goes down to around 20 million dollars in space at that point so you're really looking at a situation where you only have Jimmy Butler, Nicola Miritich, Robin Lopez, some bad role players that maybe turn into something, but we probably know they're not going to in Jerry and Grant, Cameron Payne, Denzel Valentine, and Bobby Portis, and $20 million in space. So you have to ask yourself at that point, do the Bulls have enough to, to go forward and, and, and sign anyone of note in free agency, With that amount of cap space, and I think the answer is no. I mean, that's ultimately why they went for the rebuild because they just didn't have enough assets at that point. They, like I alluded to before, they blew the 2014 draft. Doug McDermott's not even in the roster anymore, but I mean, you could have had Gary Harris and Yusuf Nurkic at that point. Maybe that situation looks a lot different as I sort of alluded to before, but at this point with only $20 million in space and Butler being your only real piece... It doesn't make sense. So I think we sort of still head towards a rebuilding situation. So the Wade contract in this scenario really does hurt you because you had to agree to a buyout. So that's the biggest what if of this scenario. Had the Bulls not given Dwayne Wade a guaranteed money in the second year of his deal, and had it not been a player option, but maybe a team option, then then that really does change the scenario because instead of having that $16 million buyout on the books, take that away and suddenly a $20 million in space turns into $35, $36 million in space and then you can really get into free agency. Maybe you can get a guy for one big max deal and bring in that type of player or you could split that over two or three role players and again, build out a competitive team around Jimmy Butler, whatever the situation is. Obviously, having $36 million in space is a lot better than $20 million in space, so... I mean, that Wade contract really hurt the Bulls and the fact that it was a player option, not a team option. So that's what really hurt the Bulls. The fact that they gave a then 34-year-old Dwayne Wade so much money in year one, but guaranteed his contract in year two, which is effectively what you're doing when you give someone that old the ability to uh, go into the final year of his deal and make $24 million. You're basically making that a guaranteed deal. There's no way Dwayne Wade was not opting into that money. So... Yeah, that screwed the Bulls, unfortunately, there. So, there wasn't really much of, of a solution post that situation. $20 million in space with Wade's with Wade's buyout on the books. That there was, there was nothing really you could do about it, unfortunately. So, I understand why the Bulls went into the rebuild and I sort of supported it at the time because of all the errors they had made beforehand. I, I didn't want to trade Jimmy Butler. I didn't think he was a player that you didn't want to build around or build with. I think he was more than capable than than being your franchise guy but unfortunately because the Bulls had just sort of cashed out all their assets they didn't really have much of an avenue so All the poor work that they had done beforehand sort of crippled that error and unfortunately we know what happened thereafter. So that's that one. Continuing with the next what if scenario and continuing down the line of bad Bulls decisions. This one comes in from Jacob Kreisman and he asks, what if the Bulls never waved Spencer Dinwiddie? So I know this one's definitely going to piss off a segment of the fan base because it still does today and you know what? I, I don't care. This was an obvious miss by the Bulls and people like to point out that... Dinwiddie isn't the player that he currently is with the Nets while he was in Chicago and well obviously he wasn't that player but that doesn't mean people didn't see potential in him at the time I know I vividly remember actually that when the Bulls dealt best though for Dinwiddie there were people that were lauding the move because they saw the potential in the player Dinwiddie could be maybe he couldn't be they didn't see this type of potential but they saw a player that could at least be a guy that could come off the bench and do some stuff for the Bulls so it was a good trade at the time and The management actually got lauded for that because it was a good deal. Anytime you can turn Cameron Bairstale into into, uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, you you do it because he's a big guard who could play both positions and showed signs of being a decent shooter in college before he got injured. So it was worth the time to play the guy and give him a shot. But of course, as we know, the Bulls preferred Michael Carter-Williams. They made the trade for him. They traded Tony Snell for him. And I'm probably in the minority, but I thought that Snell could have shaped into an okay role player off the bench. And... I hated the deal for Michael Carter-Williams. I thought it was a bad deal at the time. I I said it at the time because we knew what Michael Carter-Williams was. He was a bad player who couldn't shoot, couldn't do anything on offense. He wasn't a point guard because of of the fact that he couldn't shoot. He didn't want to have the ball in his hands because he couldn't do much regardless of that fact anyway. So I would prefer just basically giving the shot to Snell and, and seeing if he could finally develop into that 3 and D option. I know he pissed off a lot of the fans, but uh, <laughs> I still believed in Tony Snell. But in, in essence, what they did was they traded Snell for Michael Carter-Williams. And because they thought Michael Carter-Williams could be one of their point cards of the future, they waived Spencer Dinwiddie. So in essence, what they did is they traded Tony Snell and Spencer Dinwiddie for for Michael Carter-Williams. And that was just dumb. It was dumb because we knew... Michael Carter-Williams sucked. And basically, to replace the Tony Snell role, they signed R.J. Hunter, but R.J. Hunter didn't work either. So, it was just a terrible trade, and I said as much at the time. And what it's really done is it's enabled the point guard carousel to continue over time. Jerry and Grant wasn't ever going to amount to anything. Cameron Payne definitely wasn't. Isaiah Cannon was definitely not a long-term player at all. Michael Carter-Williams, like I said, he sucked. We already knew that before he came here. Chris Dunn had a good... A good first year in Chicago, but he looks like he's out the door now. But I mean, how much does that outlook of the point guard position change if you know you've got still spent, uh, you've still got Spencer Dinwiddie in the mix? And maybe he's not the same player that he currently is with the Nets, but I still feel he could have been a confident backup for Chicago. when if you know Chris Dunn isn't the option, then at least you have to feel comfortable in knowing that Dinwiddie Whilst he may not be your long-term solution, he could just sort of plug and play in there for a little bit until you do find that long-term solution, particularly if you don't get that in the draft this year. If the Bulls miss out on Jar Morant and they don't really get much happening in free agency, then Spencer Spencer Dinwiddie wouldn't have been a bad backup option, I guess, at least for a stopgap solution. But yeah, unfortunately, the Bulls point guard situation rolls around and we keep looking and we keep trying to find a better solution there. But Something else to consider is the ramifications that the Carter Williams trade had on the, on the rest of the roster. They trade for um, uh, for Michael Carter Williams. Obviously, they find out pretty quickly that he's not much good. So then they go to the trade deadline looking for another point guard, and that's when they traded for Cameron Payne. So that's when the the, the Payne trade happens. He traded out Taj Gibson McDermott and a second round pick for Cameron Payne, but. Maybe that doesn't need to happen if you play Spencer Dinwiddie, if you're confident in Dinwiddie over Carter Williams because you've, you've got a play in Dinwiddie that you can sort of invest time in. Maybe you don't need to make the pain trade. And why that's critical is the Bulls gave up a second-round pick in that trade. Not only did they give up the best player in that deal, which is Taj Gibson, but they gave up a second-round pick, which ended up being a pretty damn good second-round pick considering the team went for the rebuild. And that second-round pick eventually made its way to the New York Knicks who in the second round, they ended up drafting Mitchell Robertson, who had a damn good rookie season this season. So, so the flow on effect of that Michael Carter Williams deal, you could argue, led to the Cameron Payne trade, which led to a host of other bad decisions. So, that's what, well, that's the problem with the Bulls. They, they, they put their foot forward with one good move, but then they take two steps back. The, the, the deal to get Spencer Dinwiddie in was a good one, but then they sort of undo that and make two, two bad moves thereafter. The one being the Michael Carter Williams deal, the next being, the Cameron Page trade. And though they don't necessarily need to happen if you are confident in what you have in Spencer Dinwiddie and if you see that you have an actual decent player in Dinwiddie. I know some fans will like to pretend that they didn't know that and we didn't know that at the time, but I call bullshit on that. I thought that Spencer Dinwiddie was going to be at least a decent backup. A lot of people thought the same. So to those fans that are sitting there and saying, who knew that Dems, uh, Spencer Dinwiddie could turn into a decent player? A lot of people did. And management should have known that. And the Bulls team should have known that. Because he was actually good for the team in summer league. And he was right under their nose. But uh, unfortunately, the Nets got him for nothing. So yeah, hopefully that answers your question, Jacob. That one still bothers me to this day. I like the McDermott trade. But um, <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting what if. But um, look, that probably I probably paused here. And look, I didn't think I was going to do this. But I, I only thought I'd do two shows but I might actually hit pause on this show and I might have to come back for a part three for these what ifs and because I've still got a few more and I could easily say I could just skip it and bag them for another time and not necessarily come back to them but I... You guys took the time to write them in, so I should take the time to record it. And rather than than making this a super long podcast, what I'll do is I'll come back for another episode and and I'll answer the remaining what-ifs that I do have, which are more related to the current day balls in terms of what we're seeing going around in the rebuild at the moment. So let's hit pause for now. I'll come back later in the week. Be on the lookout for part three. I've just called an audible. We're going to do a third show. So be on the lookout for that later in this week. You'll find that in all the usual spots. As always, follow Bulls HQ on Twitter at Bulls HQ Pod. And follow me too while you're at it at MK Hoops. And while you're doing that too, follow Blue Wire on Twitter as well at Blue Wire Pod. So check it all out. And as I said, I'll be back later in this week for part three of the what if scenarios. So looking forward to it. Speak again then, Bulls fans. Oh